This morning, God's Word comes to us from Hebrews chapter 2, Hebrews 2, and we'll be reading all 18 verses of this chapter. Hebrews 2, beginning at verse 1, what we hear now is God's Word. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received the just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, Behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery." For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted." Here we are in the reading of God's holy word. I'm going to read also this morning from Lord's Day 6 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Lord's Day 6, questions 16 through 19. Uh, talking about the mediator, question 16. 
Why must he be truly human and truly righteous? The answer, God's justice demands it. Man has sinned, man must pay for his sin, but a sinner cannot pay for others. Question 17, why must he also be true God? So that by the power of his divinity, he might bear the weight of God's anger in his humanity and earn for us and restore to us righteousness and life. Question 18. And who is this mediator? True God, and at the same time, truly human and truly righteous. Our Lord Jesus Christ, who was given us to set us completely free and to make us right with God. Question 19. How do you come to know this? The Holy Gospel tells me. God himself began to reveal the gospel already in paradise. Later, he proclaimed it by the holy patriarchs and prophets and portrayed it by the sacrifices and other ceremonies of the law. Finally, he fulfilled it through his own dear son. Well, this morning, we continue to look at that second section of the Heidelberg Catechism, the deliverance section, which tells us how we find our way out of our sin and misery. We looked at our sin and misery, said it's known because of the law, said it's through our relationship with Adam and Eve that we are fallen, and that God is just to hold us accountable. So where do we look for a way out? Where do we find our deliverance? And we saw in Lord's Day 5 last time, when asking where do we look for a way out, we're reminded that God's justice must be satisfied. God is a just God who requires satisfaction for sin. God's justice must be satisfied. And Lord's Day 5 said either by ourselves or by another. We talked about can we pay this debt ourselves? Is there anything I can do to pay the debt of my sin? And the terrible answer, no. In fact, I get deeper in sin every day. What about another creature? Can any other creature pay the debt for me? After all, in the Old Testament, they sacrificed goats and bulls. They sacrificed creatures for their sin. No, because of God's justice, he won't punish any other creature for the sins of mankind, and no mere creature could bear the weight of God's anger. Finishing up last time, the catechism asks, almost in desperation, well then, what kind of mediator and deliverer should we look for? The answer, he must be truly human and truly righteous, yet more powerful than all creatures, that is, he must also be true God. And then in Lord's Day 6, we have one of the clearest statements on the nature of our mediator. Why did he have to be human? The Catechism gives us a very, very clear answer. Why did he have to be righteous? Again, the Catechism gives us a very, very clear answer. Why must he be divine? 
The Catechism, in all of its clarity, tells us the truth. That is, that is an echo of Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2 uses that same clarity to describe the perfection of Jesus Christ, how he is fitting as our only mediator. Lord's Day 6, very, very clear. Hebrews 2, very, very clear. My goal this morning is not to obscure that which is so clear. But perhaps I have done that already with this morning's sermon title. If you have looked at the, the bulletin that was sent out uh, yesterday, the title of this morning's sermon is Cur Deus Homo. Cur Deus Homo. That is a Latin phrase. It comes from one of the church fathers, St. Anselm, in the Middle Ages, when he was describing the qualifications of the mediator. Now, maybe, kids, there's a couple words in there you might kind of recognize. That middle word, deus, that is the word for God. We think about the word deity or divine or divinity, these all referencing God. So deus means God. The last word there, homo, is a word that means man. Those of you kids who are a little bit older, you know we describe man as homo sapien. He's man. And that first word, cur, Although there's no linguistic connection, you might think of the word curious. When we're curious, we want to know why things are the way they are. This Latin phrase means, why the God-man? The mediator had to have certain qualifications. Why did he have to be God? And also, why did he have to be man? And that's exactly the question we get from Lord's Day 6. Why must he be truly human and righteous? Why must he also be true God? The questions of Lord's Day 6 are answered so beautifully in Hebrews chapter 2. His perfect qualifications as the one who was truly human and righteous and the one who was truly divine as well. This morning we look at the question, Cur Deus Homo, why the mediator had to be God and man. He had to be truly human. We read in verse 10, For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. And then verse 14, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Jesus partook of our human nature. And it was perfectly right, it was perfectly fitting. Because the children have flesh and blood, the mediator also had to have flesh and blood. The mediator has to be human because it was humanity that fell into sin. And Jesus Christ was truly human. He was truly born as a real human baby. He truly grew up 
in a human household. He truly lived a real human life. And that life was taken away at the end when he died on the cross. Jesus was truly human. His life was a life of suffering. Again from verse 10. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by things all whom exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Jesus lived a real human life, but it was a life of suffering. He came as a man to suffer for man. He came that he might suffer in our place. We share in that humanity. Look at verse 11. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation I will sing your praise. The sanctifier and those who are sanctified have one source. They have a connection. Jesus Christ is truly human because it's humanity that fell into sin. While he is truly human, he is also truly righteous. Again from verse 14. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who, through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. He is the one who is truly human, yet also the one who is truly righteous, so that he could pay for the sins of others. He was made like us in every way, yet without sin. Again, from our confession, question 16. Why, truly human and righteous, God's justice demands it. Man who has sinned must pay for his sin, but a sinner cannot pay for others. We saw that even in our look uh, last week or the week before at the tabernacle and the high priest. How when the high priest went into the most holy place, he had to make atonement for himself first before he could atone for the sins of others because he was not righteous. Jesus Christ comes as the perfectly righteous, as the one who is sinless, with perfect sufficiency, not needing to cover his own sin, that he might cover the sins of others. And in all of history, there has ever been only one who is truly human and one who is truly righteous. One who is connected with humanity, but not sinful like humanity. One, Jesus Christ. He is the only one ever in existence that perfectly fit the requirements of our mediator, Cur Deus Homo. Why the God-man? He had to be man for humanity's sins. He had to be righteous to pay for the sins of others. Cur Deus Homo. Why the God-man? We might also ask the question, 
Cordeus Homo, why the God-man? Why did he have to be God? And that's the question our, our catechism asks us, question 17. Why must he also be true God? Answer, so that by the power of his divinity, he might bear the weight of God's anger in his humanity. Why must he be true God to have the power to bear our sins and to bear God's anger against sin? We talked about that in the sin and misery section. God is terribly angry about the sins we commit. God pours out his wrath, his anger upon sinners. And it, was, it is only... It is only someone who is able to take that wrath who must be divine to withstand the wrath of a holy God. Look at verse 16. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Jesus comes as a faithful high priest to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Now, children, I'm sure you have never used the word propitiation ever. Propitiation is not a word we use very often, although we read it earlier in 1 John, the word propitiation. It's a very big word, but it's really quite an easy word to understand. A propitiation is just a, a covering. You could sort of think of a, of a propitiation like a blanket, something that covers something else. When we talk about Jesus Christ as a propitiation, he is one who is a covering. Now, what is he covering? The, the heart of the idea of propitiation is not that he is covering over our sin. That's not what's being covered. What is being covered when we say propitiation is the anger, the wrath of God. Jesus Christ comes as a propitiation, as a covering and his blood covers God's wrath. Now, to be able to cover the wrath of God, you must be God. No creature could ever cover the wrath, the righteous, perfect, holy wrath of God, except God himself. Jesus had the power. He had to be made this way. It was necessary to cover God's wrath. He is the propitiation. Question 17, why must he also be true God? So that by the power of his divinity, he might bear the weight of God's anger in his humanity. And, our confession says, to earn for us and restore to us righteousness and life. He covers over God's wrath and restores us to righteousness and to life. Look at verse 9. 
For we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. And now verse 14, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. He comes to deliver those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Jesus Christ removes the fear of death. Now we know, those of us who are in Christ Jesus, we have no fear of what happens beyond our death, but some of us perhaps still are afraid of the circumstance of our death. We need not fear either, for Jesus Christ removes even the fear of death, one of the most fundamental fears of mankind, the fear of dying. I mean, we see that in the world around us, all kinds of uh, uh, money spent on cosmetic surgeries to keep myself looking young, and I, I work out hard to try to stave off death as long as I can, but it is inevitable. There's a fear of death, whether the world acknowledges it or not. Jesus Christ came to remove that fear. The fear of death is gone because he has already died in our place. He has come, he was forsaken by God on the cross that we might never be forsaken. He went and suffered the torments of hell, that which we deserved. He suffered in our place. He came to free us, to truly free us and restore us to righteousness and to life. The power of the God-man, one who is able to cover over God's wrath, one who is able to earn righteousness for each and every one of his people. Cordeus homo, why the God-man? That he might be the perfect mediator. And so our confession, asking perhaps somewhat pedantically at this point, verse eight, uh, chapter, <laughs> question 18, and who is this mediator, true God, at the same time, truly human and truly righteous? It is our Lord Jesus Christ. In all of history, there has ever only been one who fits the qualifications of the mediator one who was truly human yet truly righteous, one who was also divine God, more powerful than any other creature. He is the only one, the only mediator for the sins of mankind. And, and God, God himself testifies to the truth of his son Jesus Christ. God himself is a faithful witness in sending his son. We read in verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. When God sent his son, Jesus Christ, Jesus himself declared the truth. 
He was the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. Jesus Christ, eternal God, declared the truth to those around him. And God himself would attest to that truth. Verse 4, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. God himself bore witness, which is no surprise. Because God throughout history has borne witness to the truth of his son Jesus Christ coming as that only mediator for sin. Our confession in question 19, how, how do you come to know this? The Holy Gospel tells me God himself began to reveal the gospel already in paradise. God himself from the beginning of time would reveal the truth of the gospel. Remember kids, we talked about Genesis chapter 3. It's been a couple weeks ago now. Genesis chapter 3, the story of the fall. But even in that story of the fall, we hear these words spoken that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. That's the gospel. The seed of the woman looks forward to this perfect mediator, this God-man, Jesus Christ. And he would come and crush the head of the serpent. God bore witness to the truth of his son already in paradise. Our confession says... And he proclaimed it by the holy patriarchs and the prophets. The prophets declare Jesus Christ, which is why Jesus, or the, the author of Hebrews, can refer to Jesus and take the prophets as if Jesus is speaking there of himself. Let's pick it up at verse 12. Uh, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, from the prophets, behold, I, Jesus speaking of himself, and the children God has given me. The prophets speak of Jesus Christ. He speaks through the prophets. The, the prophets already in the Old Testament testify to the coming mediator, to the one who would be truly human, like his brothers in every way. The sacrifices, the ceremonies, our confession says, bear witness to the coming Jesus Christ. We've seen that before in, the, in looking at some of the ceremonies and the sacrifices, how they point forward to the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Even the Psalms. When we studied Psalms, we saw how the Psalms spoke of Christ, some of them more clearly than others. Uh, Psalm 22, which I began the service with this morning, is quoted here. Again, verse 12, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. But also earlier in our text, verse 6, let's pick up at verse 5. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. From Psalm 8. Now, I don't think, in my exegesis, I would have seen that connection had Hebrews not given to us. 
that this speaks of Jesus Christ. What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man you care for him, you made him for a little while lower than the angels and put everything in subjection. What does our author say? Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see, yet see everything in subjection, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. We see Jesus. The Psalms testify to Jesus Christ. All of Scripture, the Psalms, the prophets, the Old Testament history, all points forward to Jesus Christ, the perfect mediator, the one who answers the question, cur Deus homo, why the God-man? I hope that that question, cur Deus homo, why the God-man, is more than just an academic question to you. It certainly does point out the qualifications of the mediator. Why must he be man? Because mankind has sinned. Why must he be God? That by the power of his divinity, he might bear the wrath of God in his humanity. But the question, cur deus homo, is more than an academic question. When we hear the question, why the God-man? I hope the first thing that comes to our mind, why the God-man? Because of my sin. Because he came to be my mediator. Because I am fallen. Because I am sinful. Because I left to myself could never satisfy the justice of God. I am only human. I am not divine. I am fallen and sinful and increase my sin every day. Why the God-man? It was for me. It was for me that he perfectly fulfilled these qualifications. That he might be my mediator, my savior, my sacrifice for sin. And that Jesus Christ that same Jesus Christ continues to be the sacrifice for sin. He continues to be the only one who is able to take our sins away. He's the only one who can cover the wrath of a righteous God. It is that same Jesus Christ who calls you today to put your trust in him. Left to ourselves, we have no hope. We are simply men and women, boys and girls, unable to save ourselves. We cannot withstand the wrath of a holy God. But Jesus Christ can. And he calls you to trust in him. He calls you to embrace him as Savior. That you might be freed from the fear. The fear of death. That you might be restored to righteousness. And restored to fellowship with the holy God. Why the God-man? Because salvation is found in no other name than in Jesus Christ. Let's join together for prayer. Lord our God, we thank you for your perfect plan of redemption. 
It is a plan, Lord God, that is certainly beyond us. And we are amazed at how you satisfied that plan to satisfy your justice. You sent one who was uniquely qualified. You sent your son, Jesus Christ, truly a man, and yet truly righteous and without sin. You sent your son, he was divine, that he might bear the wrath that you righteously had against sin. You sent him for us. You sent him for our sin. Lord God, may we with joy today remember what Jesus Christ has done for us. May we remember all of his perfections, that he is the one, the only one who fits the qualifications. And may we this day once again rejoice in what you have done for us, praising you for the gift of the perfect God-man. Hear our prayer, O God, for Jesus' sake. Amen.